as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, we learned that the Gospel of Mark divides into three acts. You might have to click each of these. Uh, Act 1, Jesus' public ministry, where he's performing miracles and teaching the public. Act 2, Jesus' private ministry, where he's teaching his disciples. And therefore, we pay special heed to his teaching us as his disciples this morning. Act 3, when Jesus goes to the cross and dies and rises again. And here in chapter 8, uh, from verses uh, 27 to, ter- 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 to 33, we are into his private ministry. He's just started on his private ministry with his disciples. Jesus and his disciples have left Beth Seda, where Peter, Andrew, and Philip were from. And now they've begun a journey that sees them travel to Caesarea Philippi, uh, on the next slide, which is about 40 kilometers north, the last outpost of Galilee, near a town called Dan. You might remember uh, when in the Old Testament the length of Israel was described from north to south. It was described as being from Dan to Beersheba in Second Samuel 17. So Jesus is right at the north. It was re- uh, located in a Gentile area, mostly occupied by Gentiles. So a place filled with idols, because Gentiles live there. So therefore, a place opposed to what the Jews believed and opposed to scripture in general. So maybe a good place for Jesus to ask the question that he asks in these verses today. A good environment to test the disciples to see what their understanding was, given what they were surrounded by. And the journey will end eventually. He'll come back down the other side of the lake of Galilee to Jerusalem, where he will die and rise again. And Jesus is teaching his disciples now to prepare them for what's to come. The account that um, we read this morning is also recorded for us in Matthew 16 and in Luke 9. It's significant that three of the Gospels record this event. It's a very significant and important event. And as they're walking from village to village, we read, they talk, as we do ourselves, a great place to talk and explore ideas is when we're walking together and we get very few words here of what they said but you can imagine they said a lot more as they chatted and talked and Jesus asked and the answers came forward and backwards we're getting a summary of what he asked and what they said and he puts a two-question exam oh that all exams would have only two questions but he puts a two-question exam to them question one who do the people say that I am. And Jesus is referring here to the general crowds, the people who've been coming along to see what he did, particularly absorbed by the miracles. Uh, They've just been observing from a distance, if you like. People who hadn't believed him. They were unrepentant. And some said John the Baptist. Well, why would you pick John the Baptist? Well, he was dead, wasn't he? Herod had beheaded him. But it was Herod himself who said, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist come back from life. And so people heard Herod say it and say, maybe Herod's right. Maybe that's who he is. And some said, Elijah, well, why? these seem three strange names to pick. Why Elijah? Because in Malachi chapters four and five, we read that Elijah was to come just before Jesus came back, uh, before the Messiah came. Others said, Jeremiah, why him? Why pick him from the bag? of all the people they could have picked because there was a strong tradition among the Jews at the time that Jeremiah, realizing that 
Babylon was going to take over Jerusalem uh, at the time in his day he went to the temple he took the altar of um, he took the incense of the uh, and the ark and he hid them in Mount Nebo and tradition said that before the Messiah would return Jeremiah would come back he would go to the mountain and he would get the altar of incense and the ark of the covenant and bring them back to the temple that was a tradition and that's what the people thought maybe that's who Jesus is maybe he is Jeremiah come back and you would wonder why they even said all those things because at this stage they had seen so many miracles they had seen the amazing things Jesus had done plenty evidence to believe he was the Messiah and now the Israelites the unrepentant Israelites are being judged as Jesus leaves them and moves away from that Jewish area completely on his way to the cross we um what we were in, in our small group last monday night we were learning about um predestination uh, a nice handy topic to discuss on a monday night uh, but one thing we learned is that no one will stand before god at the end when we're all judged and say to god it's unfair you're sending me to hell because god is a god of justice and no one will be without excuse and the Galileans we can see why that's the case we could say to them if we met them today did you not see all that Jesus ha had done did you not listen to him could you not why wouldn't you believe they were without excuse it's a challenge to all of us to believe while we can John 12 verse 36 says believe in the light while you have the light while you see while you can think and understand so that you may become children of light when he had finished speaking jesus left and hid himself from them very strong words believe in him and this is a challenge for all of us while we have the light you see they knew that jesus was a prophet they, they kind of agreed with that because of the way he acted and what he said but they couldn't see him as the messiah they thought it's not possible because they still perceived he was going to be political and set them free from roman rule and destroy their enemies and bring blessings and make them prosperous and give them peace and make israel the greatest nation on earth that's what they thought from the old testament promises that's what they thought was all coming together now uh, he wasn't coming as a, as a leader as a military power he wasn't coming as a conqueror he didn't even look or act like a king in their eyes uh, we know you're a prophet jesus but messiah no we, we, can, we can't make sense of that and so jesus well he of course he knows what the people think really what he's trying to do is ask the disciples and this is the real question isn't it question two who do you say that i am this is the most important question all of us must ask in life we were in dublin yesterday with our kids and stephen is into his last semester in college three exams left to go we were asking him one day how many exams have you done in your life through all the for all of you as uh, students uh, in school how many exams and it comes down to the last three eventually the last one then he's free of exams that's a great feeling isn't it but of all the exams we've done in life and all the questions we've answered for all of us this is the single most important question this question sits at the peak of a triangle of exams you may have done in your life who do you say jesus christ is and asking that question of course you're asking who do you say he is personally to how will you respond to him to what he says the claims he makes 
and the claims he makes on your life? It is the most important question you will ever ask yourself. So it's one we all need to grapple with. Jesus' impact on human history is so colossal that at some point, everybody must ask that question. Who do I say that Jesus is? Peter here is acting as spokesman for the disciples. So it's not just his answer. Again, picture they're on the road, they're talking. So they're all engaging in the question Jesus asked. And Peter acts as a spokesman. And um, he says, you are the Messiah or you are the Christ. It's the right conclusion. It's the right answer. Messiah or Christ, it means anointed in Hebrew. It's not Jesus' second name. Jesus is his name. You shall call his name Jesus. Christ is a title which means anointed. He is the anointed one of God. God's anointed, promised, chosen, prophet, priest, and king. Because in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to show their significance. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Why we wonder for the disciples did it take so long to understand this, to make this wonderful confession, what Jesus wanted them to understand. This is the first time in the account of Jesus' life in Mark's gospel that any human being makes that confession. Why did it take them so long to do it? This is the high point in the gospel of Mark. Everything so far leads up to this statement by Peter and everything from this point on flows from what he has just said. This is the moment uh, in which the disciples settle the matter in their minds as to who Jesus is. It's the moment that they are convinced he is the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who was sent that the Old Testament spoke about, that they were confused about. He is the one. Yes, Jesus, we get it. You are the one. We Now we see it. You are the one. It's only a few months from the cross. They've been with him about two years. It's taken this long. You see, mostly they were convinced he was the Messiah in the last two years. Why else did they follow him? They gave up jobs. You know, that wasn't easy to follow him. They must have believed he was the Messiah. They turned their backs on their traditional faith. So uh, these guys were followers. Lots of other followers left him. These guys stuck with him and others as well. So to some degree, they accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist had called him the Messiah. So from the outset, that's in their minds. But as the two years pass, they struggle, not because of the lack of evidence from his divine power, um, but they struggle because Jesus is not conforming to their preconceived ideas. He's not kind of delivering what they thought he might deliver for them and for people at their time. They have doubts. Uh, they concluded, I don't know if he's the Messiah. He must be someone just short of the Messiah. But is he the Messiah? Because where's the conquest of freedom, the national freedom? Where's the overthrow of Rome? And he's so meek and humble. He doesn't act or look like a leader. He doesn't look like the Messiah. I thought the Old Testament spoke about. You see, even John the Baptist, he had doubts. Amazingly, isn't it? How could John the Baptist doubt, you would say? John, who would have grown up being told of the story of his own birth and how his mother had gone to see her cousin and Jesus' birth, he had so much evidence. And now he doubts 
as well. Well, why wouldn't he be out? Well, maybe he was in prison. In his mind, where is this in the plan? Where is this in the plan of this Messiah coming to set us free? But here at last, at last for the disciples, they settled the matter on who the person of Jesus Christ is. Now, what made them make that confession? This is interesting as well. Did they work it out for themselves? This is amazing. We see the answer in Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew uh, shares this account as well, because he quotes it like this. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Matthew 16, 27. Jesus replied, when Simon answered, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh uh, and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The revelation in their minds is from God and for us too. That's where we get to understand who Jesus is. God is the one who shows us who he is. And that's good to know as we share our faith with others. You see, sometimes we worry, ah, I didn't do a good job. I should have said, I didn't put it very clearly. It really doesn't matter. So long as we're sharing and showing Jesus in our lives and our words, it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of convincing people who Jesus Christ is. Jesus needed his disciples to understand, to answer this question before he moved on to teach them uh, the next thing he wanted them to learn. Then he says this funny thing, tell no one. Now that's a bit confusing because now we're probably thinking, well, we understand why he kept telling them about the miracles, don't tell people, because he didn't want to be thronged with people who only wanted illnesses to be healed. But now we say, Messiah, surely that's what Jesus wants people to know him as. But not yet, because the gospel hasn't come yet. The cross is yet to come. And Jesus doesn't want to be known as a Messiah, uh, God's anointed one, until people understand fully what that means. The cross is still to come. And that's why he tells them, not yet, hold off a little while more. And they had, they had more to learn. Verse 31, Ronan read for us, he began to teach them. This was what he would do from now on. He be, uh, as the Gospel of Mark progresses, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, no ambiguity, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's almost shocking for us when we read that. We think that's very aggressive on Jesus' part, poor Peter. Now, we're used to good news and bad news. How many times has someone come to say to you, I've got good news for you and bad news, which do you want first? There's plenty of jokes of this. You know, you're, uh, this is probably not a very good joke, but your wife takes your new car for a drive and she comes home and she says, well, honey, I've got good news for you. Your airbag works anyway. <laughs> But this is the greatest uh, good news, bad news story, the ultimate good news, bad news story. For Peter, the greatest commendation he ever received, he ever received, followed by the greatest condemnation he ever received just a few seconds afterwards. At first, the news couldn't have been better. They understood who Jesus was. It was clear in their minds, and their life's purpose was so worthwhile, they saw who he was. But there's great confusion about the plan, you see. They know who the person is. They confirm the person, but they're denying the plan that he has. 
The good news was they understood who Jesus was for centuries as a nation, for a lifetime as individuals. The Jews had looked forward to the coming Messiah and to the fulfillment of all those promises we, read, we, we thought about in the Old Testament, promises of salvation, an expanded land, a kingdom, blessing, prosperity, power, influence, glory coming, uh, the nation that all nations would look up to, all that joy and blessing and peace they looked forward to. And these 12 and others had followed him over these two years, and they were looking forward to all of those things. And here he was, the Messiah, and now he tells them he's going to die. How could that make sense? Just when they've grasped who he is, he's going to die. A death notice, bad news, bad, bad news for them. Everything they believed in now would make no sense. It would seem to be a waste. The Messiah they had waited for and now affirmed is going to be killed. And Peter goes from hero to zero. He goes from being a spokesman for God and hard noises to believe to being a spokesman for Satan. The one who will bring salvation and hope to Israel will be killed by the people of Israel and the world. They've already said, as the last two years, they've said truly, you are the son of God when he walked in the water, when he fed 5,000 people um, and all some of the other miracles they had seen him do, they had affirmed his deity, but now they confirmed his position, his messianic office. Both of these understandings came within a few weeks of each other. They had come to the summit. They had come to the summit of their understanding as to who Jesus was. You are the son of God, the Christ. It makes no sense then that he would be killed, that he would be killed by Israelites as well as others as well. But it's what Jesus would go on to teach them from here on out in this chapter, in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And why would he do this? Because in chapter 10, verse 45, skipping ahead, Jesus gives the answer. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. He would explain this to them. For them, they must have wondered what are the many, many things he would suffer. And for us, it's good just to consider what Jesus suffered for us. Betrayal, arrest, denial, abandonment, injustice, prison, beating, mockery, being hung on a cross, rejected by those around him who loved him or who he thought were close to him. And not only is it going to be by foreigners or strangers, but by the elders, the leaders of the church at the time, the priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin was who put all this in motion for Jesus to die. They were the ruling council of Jerusalem. Seventy men made up of elders and judges and chief priests and Pharisees and other important people who led society in that day. How could they do this, we would ask, to not read Isaiah 53 and understand who he was? But the bad news that Jesus has just shared ends in good news. After three days, he will rise again. But I think, having heard he must die, they missed that point somehow. They didn't focus on he must rise again. And surely the confusion was not to how he communicated, because we read he was clear. He spoke clearly and simply to them. So Peter says to Jesus, spokesman again, come with me, come aside. Peter needs to explain to Jesus what Messiah is all about. He knows Jesus needs to be explained what it means to be Messiah. And he rebukes Jesus. Now we can look back and smile, but Peter was genuine in this. It made no 
sends to him. His rebuke is stern, and if you go back to the original text, it's the same words that Jesus used when he said to his disciples, don't tell people about these miracles. You're seeing a very firm, clear command, same tone Peter uses to rebuke Jesus. Matthew records it like this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. We won't allow it. There's no way you're going to die. Why would he have said this? Maybe we do the same sometimes. We have ideas of what Jesus should do for us, how Jesus should act in our lives, the way we'd like him to act in our lives. And Peter was thinking for the here and the now and the way he thought it was, the way he understood it to be. And so he spoke to Jesus the way that he did. Now, what can we learn from this account for our own lives? Why was Jesus' response to Peter so strong? Get behind me, Satan sounds so strong and harsh. Because anything that gets in the way of God's plan for our lives robs us of joy. Anything that gets in the way of God's plan for our lives robs us of joy. And sometimes we miss that point. All those who are ready to give up their lives in faithfulness to God will live with God forever in the fullness of joy. If we want real joy, fulfillment, contentment, it is in giving ourselves completely to him and not allowing anything get between his plan for us um, and, and us. Jesus, you see, knew the freedom the people most needed was spiritual freedom from sin and God's wrath not freedom from political oppression because his kingdom is a spiritual and everlasting kingdom and he invites us into that kingdom still today. But to achieve this for us, Christ's way meant suffering and sacrifice, not political maneuvering and not self-preservation. We can give our souls and our lives to, to what this world has to offer to us instead of to spiritual things. But worldly things do not lead to spiritual life. Those who give up their lives for Christ and the gospel will find eternal life. We can spend our time and our gifts and effort trying to get these things and experiences that we think will make us happy and fulfilled. When what we really need for happiness is a personal and deep relationship with God. So we must not let anyone or anything uh, take control of our lives. We must not serve something else instead of God. We must not serve something else and God in Judges, which we also studied for some time in our small group. We learned this was a problem for the people of Israel at that time. They did worship God and offer sacrifices, but they worshipped other things as well. doesn't work. We can't do it. And it was disaster for them. It ended in disaster for their lives. Jesus taught that being great in God's kingdom means self-denial and sacrificial service. These values are opposite to what the world would say to us today. Self-denial means letting go of self-determination and becoming obedient and depending on Jesus. Happiness comes from service, and we need to practice service and generosity in our lives, flowing from his love for us. And these two things will bring more happiness and purpose into our lives than anything else. And will also they also define what it means to live for Jesus, to be a Christ Christian. 
Jesus is calling us to carry the cross of sacrificial living. Living that life is a challenge, but in today's world, people need to see, we need to show people around us that sacrificial living leads to fulfillment and to real life. Now, when Janet shared with us what happened in CU, do you think that Janet and the team on the CU committee experienced fulfillment as they shared the gospel this week? Did you see it in her face and in her smile and in her laugh? Because nothing is worth it as much as living for him and sharing the gospel. Sacrifice does not necessarily mean we have to give our lives in death because it also means just doing the small things such as caring for the vulnerable, praying, taking time to, to pray and care for others that we know need our love and care looking out for the needs of others, are serving in the church in some way. It means planning time to spend in God's presence when we could be doing something else with our time instead. Our willingness to do the small tasks as they are needed is more important than our willingness to die for Christ when we're not called to die for him. And we pray for those who are called to die for him, but for the most of us, that isn't what we're called to do. It's about living for him every day in what we do and think and say. And we're not alone. We can't do this on our own. But the good news is Jesus gives us the strength to live for him. Remember last week we said that Jesus was the touchable savior and we can go to him and ask for his touch and his help to live for him and to deal with the issues we have in our lives. And this strength will allow us to live a life that will bring us blessing and fulfillment beyond our wildest dreams. It is so worth it to give ourselves fully to him. We must ask ourselves often, it's a good question, this question here today, who do I say Jesus is? Who do I believe he is? What's his claim on my life? We must have our hearts and our mind aligned often with God to keep them aligned with him. Sometimes we can place too much emphasis on the healing of human hurts which does reflect, uh, rightly so, Christ's loving care for us, and we are right to seek uh, help and cure from hurts. But sometimes we need to place more emphasis on writing the writing of human wrongs, known as sin, the writing of our hearts. Let's not forget to pray for and look for the writing of our hearts. So a key emphasis of, of worship as we come together, as we sing together, hear God's word and pray, a key emphasis for all of us this morning must be redirecting our lives, our values, and our priorities. Uh, it must be on our hearts and on our minds. The heart of Jesus' message is change or repentance. And if we accept this, we have to let go of the lives we have now, no matter how painful the process will be. And the disciples had to grasp this. They had to grasp, they had to let go of what they perceived Jesus was going to do for them and seek what he wanted because he had to come. His kingdom was a kingdom for hearts and minds, not lands and power. So our attitude as children of God must center on a life that is lived in him. In return for his sacrifice, we need to make good use of the opportunities he gives to us uh, and the opportunities that God sends our way uh, each and every day. God wants us to be, uh, God wants to be an active presence in our lives all of the time. And it's because God uh, has been an active presence in the hearts and lives of so many 
before us down through history that the church has survived and thrived. It's the reason this church is surviving and thriving uh, as we seek to be active for God in our lives. Jesus is teaching his disciples about what following him is really going to mean. He says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. So don't run from suffering. Embrace it. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Follow me and I'll show you how. We won't be left on our own. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. My way, he says, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would be to get everything you want in life but to lose yourself, to lose your soul? What could you ever trade your soul for? So our true identity is in him and true fulfillment is in following him. Because it's true to say we can slip into a faith as we learned in judges in our small group. We can slip into a faith where we uh, can participate when we choose to. Uh, we can have a faith that does not demand too much from us, some but not too, too much. We, we, we all want a God who's strong to follow, who provides us with prosperity and, the, and guarantees security in our lives, uh, who urges our sports teams to victory and generally helps us to be happy, healthy and wise. That's good, that's good. So when we hear Jesus, what Jesus is saying, we too respond by thinking that suffering is not quite so appealing. Do I really need that? If any of us were offered the choice between suffering versus a life free from suffering, well, I bet we'd all go for the life free from suffering. But the reality is nobody's life is free from suffering. Isn't that true? All of us here today have experienced suffering in our lives. And Christianity is not about having an easier life. It's about living, it's not about living a life free from pain. Or it's not about believing in a God we can turn to help solve the problems of life and give us all we want. So from this point on, in Mark's gospel, Jesus begins to show us how to die. Seems radical, doesn't it? How to die. We have been given life. We have been given life. And now Jesus demonstrates how we are to give it up and give it away. I think for most of us, this idea runs counter to what we believe and what our instincts might say to us. It seems irrational to die, yet Jesus makes it absolutely clear that God does not care about giving us all the things uh, that we would like for creature comforts. What God cares about are matters of the heart. Jesus makes it clear that if we want to have a deeply meaningful life that truly matters, remember Janet said, what will you be remembered by that truly matters we need to ask him to set our priorities so this week today this evening ask jesus to set your priorities for the coming week following jesus means living a very counter-cultural life letting go of self-focus and self-interest and letting go of a focus and embracing a focus that's uh, opposite to what culture might expect so we're going to have to uh, be more loving then be concerned about being loved. We're going to have to work more about understanding than being understood, more about forgiveness than being forgiven. A Lutheran pastor called Peter Mar Marty describes our dilemma when we think about these things when asked to follow Jesus. And this is what he wrote one time. Near as I can tell, 
We can try to safe deposit box our lives all we want and be very, very cautious about whom we even let into our lives. But this is not commendable living. In fact, according to Jesus, it's downright dangerous li 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 living. We lose our soul if we're not careful. Living a life that really matters in the name of Jesus will not allow room for clutching or holding or playing it safe. It asks instead for a less possessive way, a way that treats life more like a precious gift to be shared than a commodity to be stored up. Good words, aren't they? Wise words. I'm almost finished. Uh, the life that has been packaged and continues to be packaged and sold to us in this culture is not real life. And we need to die to those illusions if we want to live the abundant life that God wants and he is bursting to, to give us that abundant life for us to live it. Satan puts lies in our minds all the time. The life of which Jesus speaks is not something that we can buy or earn. Like love and grace, it is all a gift and can only be given away with Jesus as our example. Can you live this life? Yes, you can, because Jesus is our example. And the deep truth Jesus is trying to tell us is that only when you give your life away for the sake of others, only through caring and serving others, do you really discover the life that truly matters. When we are able to finally let go of our egos, the part of ourselves which believes that we are in charge, the self-sufficiency we feel we have, then we can truly find the life that matters. This dying to self is painful, but it allows us to be open to whole new vistas of an abundant life. You see, we think it's too costly. We think it's too costly. The opposite is true. It's the best thing we could ever do because there's a whole new life out there for us that we can't even think or imagine. And when we are finally able to let go of self, or to let go of worry, or to let go of our anxiety, to let go of self-control, to let go of all that holds us captive, and then really die to self, we discover that God is already in that place, walking with us, holding us in his amazing love. It's then that we discover what the cross really means. It is the cross that gives us life, life that really matters. We discover the cross means loving and serving others as we are loved by him. So as Jesus begins in this gospel here with these disciples today, his relentless march to the cross, he challenges each of us today as well to follow. Jesus demands a decision from each of us when he asks, will you follow me where I am going? To each of us, he asks that today. Will you follow me? Will I follow him where he is going? You know, the good news for Peter is we know in his life he learned. He went through such a low, didn't he? Get behind me, Satan. When he denied Jesus, it was so hard for him to go through those experiences. But the good news is he learned. He went from um, hero to zero, back to hero. Because in First Peter 20, uh, chapter 2, Verses 21 to 25, we read this. This is Peter speaking. This is Peter speaking. To this you, you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He saw it. He knew he needed to suffer too. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins 
and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you, and this is still Peter speaking, for you like sheep, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. The path to glory is suffering and Jesus is our example. We too are to lay down our lives for others in our choices, in our lifestyles, in our attitude to others as well. Peter learned the value and significance of that strong reaction Jesus gave to him. He knew it's foolishness to put anything in between God's plan for our lives and what we think is the best plan for our lives. I know in my own life, I know those times I'm walking close with God, those times I'm serving him, those times I'm sharing my faith, they are so fulfilling. I know from personal experience going out to face God's word in schools, there's nothing, it, 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 the experience of that is ahead of anything I would ever do in my work or in my job. It's that sense of sharing. And for all of us, I'm sure you've experienced that as well. It is so worth to live out the plans that God has for our lives. And Janet encouraged us this morning. You can see the impact it has on her and on others today because the CU ran that mission last week. Because God has such abundant plans for our lives, it is worth living for him. It really, really is. So for all those who are ready to give up their lives in faithfulness to God, they will live forever with God in fullness of joy. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's just pray.